Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God and Father, we have come to worship and bow down and kneel before you, our Maker. You are the great shepherd. We did not make ourselves, you made us, and so we are the sheep of your pasture. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through him we come boldly to your throne of grace because he ever lives to intercede for us. Bow your heavens and come down. Inhabit the praises of your people. Remember your promise, O Spirit of Christ, to be present in the midst of your worshiping people to comfort our hearts, to teach us everything and remind us of everything that Jesus said. Grant us the joy of your fellowship, O God, to know you, our Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, in the communion of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13 says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To know Christ is to be in the school of contentment. It means learning to be content in whatever state you are in. Paul had been through many classes already, learning to be poor and rich, full and hungry, to be abased and to abound. Contentment is not apathy. Contentment is not stoicism. Contentment does not mean not caring about your circumstances. It doesn't mean having no feelings. No, contentment means knowing Christ, resting in Christ, being so completely sure of the goodness and love of Christ that you rest assured that your circumstances are serving Christ's purposes perfectly. If Christ is your savior, then he is saving you to the uttermost. He is saving you through the circumstances of your life. He is Lord of every detail of your life. And so every detail in your life is obeying your Lord for your good. Sometimes life hurts. Sometimes it's very scary. Sometimes it makes your gut go flop. But if you know Christ, you know that he holds all things together in his infinite wisdom for his glory and your good. So what is God doing with your life? Some of you are thinking, boy, wouldn't I like to know. But if you are a Christian, then you do know. He is doing exactly what it takes to make you into the image of Christ. And that should come as the most comforting news in all the world. God is not on autopilot. He is not distracted by anything. He is infinite 
And this means that he has infinite care for every detail. And so your task is to trust him. Paul actually says this means rejoicing always and in all things. Do not grumble, do not complain. God is taking you to heaven and he is preparing you for infinite joy and he is doing exactly what it takes to get you there. So begin thanking him for all of it. Rejoice in him always. And so learn contentment in Christ. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Father, we confess that we often grumble and complain. And we have bad attitudes. Sometimes we grumble out loud. And sometimes we grumble in our hearts. Sometimes we grumble and we try to cover it with sarcasm. Sometimes we are hungry or tired, and instead of trusting you in the midst of feeling that weakness, we resent how we feel and we grumble over that. Father, we are like our fathers whom you delivered through the Red Sea with a mighty hand, who immediately forgot your goodness and complained when they were hungry. And you are righteous to strike many of them down in the wilderness. Father, you have brought us out of death and darkness into the light of the new creation in Jesus. We confess that this makes our grumbling only worse. You have given us Christ, and in him all things are ours. So please forgive us for grumbling and complaining, for murmuring. Wash us clean and give us hearts of deep gratitude for the work you give us each day, deep gratitude for the food you give us each day, for the rest you give us each day, and for the challenges the difficulties, the unexpected, even the very painful things. Teach us to say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we know that if we are not being honest with you now, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Hear these words from scripture. It says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He ever lives to intercede for you. You have confessed your sins, and therefore I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Be the text this morning is Psalm 93. These are the words of God. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established, that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. 
I thank you for how you've preserved and protected your word over the centuries for your people. And I pray that as you bring it home to us, that your spirit would drive it home to us so that we might know what to think and what to do. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All the attributes of God, every last one of them, all the attributes of God are unchanging and constant by definition. But they are not always equally conspicuous to us. We are finite. God is infinite. That means that we cannot relate to God as though we were ourselves God. We cannot comprehend him the way he comprehends us. We can know, we can, uh, we can know God truly, but we cannot know God exhaustively. And we cannot know God the way God knows himself. We can only know God as he's revealed fundamentally in Christ and also in his word. Now, in his word, God parcels out attributes. He mentions this attribute and that attribute. We've got the kindness of God, the goodness of God, and so on. Uh, and we, can, we have to study it bit by bit. But we also have to understand at the same time that it's not that way in the heavens. The attributes of God are not lined out within the Godhead as though it were an exercise in systematic theology. And as we consider the attributes of God, all his attributes, his kindness, his goodness, his justice, and so on, are not always equally conspicuous to us. The Lord's right arm is always infinitely what it is, but there are times when he bears his right arm. There are times when he rises up and acts. So when the psalmist says, rise up, Lord, scatter your enemies, we, that means that we are privileged to see something that is always true. God is always sovereign, but there are times when we see him move in his sovereignty. We know his, his right arm is strong and almighty, almighty to save, but there are times when we see it happening. He's always strong, but there are times when he is revealed as clothed with strength. So we know that God is infinitely strong. We know that God is infinitely power, powerful. But there are times when he rises up and puts on his strength like a man putting on a garment. He girds himself with strength. We don't believe that this means that there was a time when God was weak and now he is strong. We believe that God is always this way and God reveals himself, manifests himself at certain points in our story, in our lives, in the history of the church, uh, at this point in Scripture, and so on. His majesty is a given, but there are times when he is clothed, not, not in the trappings of majesty, but in the reality of majesty itself. God puts on majesty. God is arrayed in glory. We're talking about the glory of God. Now, before we walk through the text and consider what it says verse by verse, I, I do want to say that given the theme of this psalm, given the things that are said about God in it, of necessity, I'm going to be using the word glory a lot. Um, and I'm going to do my best not to sound like a hill preacher from East Tennessee, uh, turning it into three syllables, you know, glory. <laughs> there, I got it out of my system. I, that's, that's all done. We're going to talk about glory. And we're not, we're, we're not going to traffic in the words. We want, to, we want to consider the thing itself. So, God is the king. God is the king. He is the one who reigns, verse 1. But his reign is also gloriously legitimate. He is clothed with majesty. It's not just a matter of power. God does not rule the world with raw power. It's not just 
power. It's not impersonal power, like electricity or a nuclear reaction. It is not malevolent power. It's not the power of an evil, omnipotent dictator. It's not the power of an, uh, an impersonal force. God rules in power, but it's the power of a father. It's the power of a king. It's the power of a person. It's not just, uh, so this God, this father, rules over all. He rules over everything. He rules over inanimate nature. He rules over those who rebel against him. And he rules over those who obey him. He is, his control does not waver from case to case. If God's controlling the, the winds and the waves and the mountains and the, and the galaxies, if he's controlling these things, his control is certain. If he's controlling his enemies, his control is certain. If he's governing his children, his sons and daughters, his control is certain. God's control, God's competence is never in question. God did not make the world and then demonstrate to everyone that he's butterfingers, you know, oops, I, I dropped it. It's not that sort of thing at all. But his control over inanimate nature, his control over his enemies, and his control over his sons and daughters, while equally certain, is very different. He deals with his sons and daughters differently than he deals with his foes. So, for example, in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we have a wonderful statement of God's sovereignty over all things, even, even great evil. The worst thing that ever happened on this planet was the crucifixion of Jesus. That was the worst travesty of justice. That was the worst thing that ever happened anywhere. And it says in 426, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done, before to be done. God was controlling Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews. God was controlling Judas. He wasn't controlling Judas for Judas's blessing, but he was, he was completely in control. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. The whole thing was scripted down to the behavior of the chickens. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're going to deny me before the cock crows. You're going to deny me. Everything is in God's control, but it turned out differently for Peter than it did for Judas. It turned out differently for Herod and for Pilate than it did for the, the apostles who were scattered. God governs all things wonderfully. He governs all things, but he doesn't govern all things with the same intention or the same purpose or with the same outcome. So, God's reign, God's sovereignty is gloriously legitimate. He is clothed with majesty. Jehovah reigns, and his reign is exhaustive and complete throughout the heavens and the earth. There is not one square inch anywhere that is outside of God's governance. There is not an atom that's out of place. Every atom in the cosmos, its position and velocity and name is determined by Yahweh. His reign is exhaustive and complete. Because he is clothed with strength, because he has gotten up and girded himself with strength, the world is established. Now, this is an important thing. There are, things, there are things down here that seem fixed to us. They seem certain to us. And then, you know, we think the, the, the earth is 
firm un until an earthquake, or we think, we think that the weather is constant until the hurricane, or we, and we take it for granted. But the only reason anything is even approximately fixed down here is because God's reign is uh, established in the heavens, because he is clothed with strength in the heavens. Therefore, the world down here is established. God's throne is ancient and everlasting because God is from eternity. Verse 2, God is the eternal one. He's from eternity, and his throne is ancient and everlasting. Therefore, things can have a semblance of fixity down here. The floods, by contrast, by way of contrast, the floods have lifted up their rebellion by means of their great voice. Verse 3, in Scripture, the uh, tumultuous sea is a common image of the nations in their rebellion against God. So the, the tumult of the Gentiles is likened to the tumult of an ocean storm. The floods have lifted up their rebellion by means of their great voice. Verse 3, but God himself, the Lord Most High, is mightier than the sound of many waters. You hear the roar of the storm. You hear the, the roar of the breakers. You hear the mighty voice of the ocean. And God is greater than that. God is bigger than that. Verse 4. He is untroubled by the waves. He walks on them. He's untroubled by the waves. He's untroubled by the storm. He walks on the water through the storm. When Jesus walked on the stormy water, he was a glorious fulfillment of this. The, and the disciples drew, look, even the winds and the waves obey him. This is, this is something. Who is, who is this? Who, who is this? Well, the answer from the Old Testament is plain who it is. Who is it that has absolute control over all things? Note the contrast, however, between the world that is established by God's throne, because God's word is established in the heavens, therefore certain things can be fixed down here, and then the world of rebellious breakers, that the, these breakers that are turned into so much ocean spray. What this God reveals is certain. What this God reveals is certain. His testimonies are sure. So if you have a God who spoke and it was, you have a God who said, let there be light and there was light. You have a, a God who spoke the, the most remote galaxy into existence and he has, um, sustains it, he providentially oversees it, he maintains all of it. This God should be trusted. When this God speaks, we should listen to what he says. So what this God reveals, what a creator God, what a providential God, what a sovereign ruling God says should be paid attention to. What this God reveals is certain. His testimonies are sure. God tells us what he is up to. God tells us in his word what he's up to, and those testimonies are sure. Holiness befits his house, and it is that way forever and ever Amen. Verse 5. So his rule is eternal. It's from eternity to eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, the scripture says. His rule is eternal. His grace is absolute. And his character is holy. And this is what he tells us. Some of it we could surmise by looking at the cosmos. Some of it he has to explain to us. Some of it he displays and we see. So his eternal majesty and divine power have been clearly seen, it says in Romans 1. So we can see some of it, 
but the rest of it he has to explain. But the first part that we see tells us that the second part that he explains, what he, what he states in general revelation, lets us know that what he says in special revelation, we need to pay close attention to. Because he's the, the one who speaks to us here is the one who did that. So, his rule is eternal, his grace is absolute, his character is holy. I said a bit ago, I said a few moments ago, that the power of God is not simply raw power. God is Jehovah, Jehovah God, and we are, we are dealing with a Jehovah God who is majestic. The power of God is not simply raw power. We do not worship an omnipotent fiend as though power could ever be detached from goodness and glory. If it's an, Paul would say, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Could you postulate uh, the devil, the devil at the top? Could you postulate a cosmos where the, the power that ruled all things uh, was spiteful, evil, malicious, cruel? Well, no, because God's attributes cannot be separated. God is necessarily omnipotent and God is necessarily good, necessarily just, necessarily holy. So we do not worship an omnipotent fiend as though we could detach one attribute from another and pit them against each other. You cannot pit the kindness of God against the justice of God. You cannot pit the justice of God over against the goodness of God and so on. We are Christians who confess the omnipotent power of God. We confess it, but we, is more than this, I want to say that we confess it gladly. We must not do this as though the doctrine were somehow a regrettable intellectual necessity. Well, yes, uh, God is God, and he's at the top, and he's responsible for everything, I suppose. And because he's responsible for everything, I suppose, we'll put omnipotence up there as a placeholder. And, and, and we'll, we will try to avoid it in sermons. We will try to avoid it in catechisms. We will try to avoid talking about it. We're going to whisper the truth of it. No. The strength of the Almighty God, the strength, the absolute strength, the omnipotent strength of the Almighty God is splendid. It is splendid. It is not something for us to confess in embarrassed whispers. It is magnificent. The glory of God is brilliant. It is ineffably radiant. There's nothing wrong with it. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. And you might think, but I've, I've been in enough conversations with coworkers. I've been in enough conversations with non-believing relatives. I've, been in, I've had a few talks with my next-door neighbor, and they say, as soon as I start talking about the absolute power of God, and I say it's brilliant, it's splendid, it's glorious, it is beautiful. God's glory, God's power, as manifested in the world, is loveliness itself. What's the objection? The objection is going to come right back at you and is going to be thrown into your teeth. You're saying that tsunami that hit Asia and killed tens of thousands of people and countless children, you're, you're saying that's, that's beautiful? You're, you're saying that this, this hurricane that hits the coast and floods, uh, floods the southeast, that's beautiful? All that destruction and mayhem, that's, that's, that's your idea of beauty? You're, you're going to say that these... Uh, horrific things that happen, the earthquakes that, that uh, bury children alive, and that's, that's your idea of lovely? That's what you're going to say? Yes. Yes. And why? And this, this is really crucial. This, um, 
It says in Amos, if disaster befalls a city, have not I the Lord done it? If disaster befalls a city, have not I the Lord done it? Yes, but you're supposed to be sheepish about it. Yeah, you're supposed to be embarrassed that he has done it. God doesn't seem to be embarrassed in, uh, when God talks about these things, when God says he's going to rise up and he's going to scatter his enemies like smoke, he doesn't appear to be embarrassed. He doesn't, he doesn't appear to be abashed at all. We are, because we're, we've adopted a humanistic mode of an, a, analyzing these things, and it really is humanistic. We make humans the center instead of God and his glory the center. Now, and, and I want to help you with this because it's not just, uh, there's more to this than shut up, oh man, right? Uh, although the, that element is to be remembered. Paul resorts to it in Romans 9. Keep your lid on. God is sovereign. You're not piped down. That, that should be remembered. God tells Job at the end of the book of Job, God comes to Job and speaks to him out of the whirlwind and tells him to pipe down. And Job repents and, and, more, and is abashed at what he has said. But there is also something in this. It's not just God flexing and saying, don't question me. There's something that I think is satisfying for your soul. Satisfying, uh, there's a satisfying answer uh, in this, and that is this. We all know what it's like to go through troubles. Sometimes our troubles are big, sometimes they're medium, and sometimes they're small. Sometimes they involve health, sometimes they involve the life of a loved one, sometimes they involve strained or broken relationships, sometimes they involve financial challenges, sometimes they, you, you're afraid that you're going to die. It could be, you could have any number of troubles. We all have troubles. Now, when you are confronted with that trouble, big, medium, or small, when you're confronted with that trouble, whatever trouble it is, it is either senseless or not. It either has a point or it doesn't. Now, if God is exhaustively sovereign over all things, if God's power is magnificent, if God's power is majestic, then all things can work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. That's possible. Whatever happens, God is up to something. And what he's up to is making you more like Jesus. And in order to make you more like Jesus, he's got to take you on the Jesus road. And the Jesus road had troubles on it. He, he is engaged in bringing you into conformity to the likeness of his son. And he knows what he's doing. He knows how to do it. He's done it countless times before, and he's doing it now. He's doing it for you. He's doing it in you and in your life. That, that is if it has purpose, if there's sense in it. The, other, the, only, the only alternative is that it's senseless. There's no point. Either your trouble has a purpose or it doesn't. If it has a purpose, then trust God to bring that purpose to, to pass. If it doesn't have a purpose, and I'm sorry, you just got caught in the machinery. Right? Now, what kind of hope is that? The world is this messed up place, grinding away, and some people are just unlucky. They get caught in the machinery, and what's the point? We cry out to the sky that doesn't answer. What's the point? And the voice comes back, there is no point, deal with it. Do you want to, do you want to live in a cosmos like that? No. I, I want to trust God to resolve everything. I believe that God is going to tie up every single plot point, every difficulty, the, the things that sometimes... We go, we go through a trouble, and we see within half an hour what the point was. Sometimes we go through a trouble, and we see five years later 
oh, I'm so glad that God took me through that. The, one of the worst things that ever happened to me is something that I now, reflecting, looking back on, is one of the best things that ever happened to me. I think at the time it didn't feel like that, but years later I've got perspective on it and I say, oh, I, I see the point of that now. Other things, we're not going to see what the point was until the resurrection. But for absolutely everything that happens to you, there is a point. Nothing about your life is pointless. Nothing is pointless. And when it's all done, not only is it not pointless, but it's going to be beautiful. Not only is it not pointless, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be splendid. It's going to be brilliant. Corey Ten Boom, a couple of uh, things from Corey Ten Boom. She said one time, God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems. Think about that. However However rough it is for you right now, whatever kind of day you you had or are having, whatever kind of week you had or whatever kind of week you think you're going to have coming up, God's not having that kind of week. God has, has no problems, only purposes, only plans. God is not thrown into consternation by the things that throw us into consternation. There's never been, an, uh, you know, it could be you having trouble finding a parking spot or it could be the outbreak of World War IV. Right? It could be big or little, but in neither case are angels running around in heaven yelling, plan B, scramble, scramble, scramble. Nobody is thrown into a tizzy in God's kingdom. No, nobody. He's not. His servants aren't. They've got perspective, and we need to trust him because of that perspective. So then, oh, the other thing that Corrie ten Boom said is that is we trust God uh, with regard to these troubles she said it's like, living under, uh, it's like living underneath the loom. You're living on the floor under the loom. And you look up at your life and all you can see is different colored knots and tangles hanging down. There's that thing and there's that thing and there's that thing and there's that thing. And then in the resurrection, you're taken out from under the loom and you're shown the design on the top. You're shown the beautiful design on the top. You're shown the tapestry. And, God, and either that's true or, or it isn't. Either uh, that, if that's true and I'm not blowing sunshine at you, then you can trust him. If it's not true, then let, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Either it makes sense or it doesn't. Either God is on his throne and it's splendid, or he isn't and it's not. That's, break it all down. It's the, the, you can't, there, there are no other options. It's either glorious or it isn't. It's either purposive or it isn't. So when God spoke to Job, it was out of the whirlwind in Job 40, verse 6. When he spoke to Elijah, his voice was not in the wind, not even in the call, um, not even the, the, the low breeze, 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12. So whether God shouts or whether God whispers, his wisdom is glorious. If every thunderclap that it ever sounded in every storm were all gathered up together and broke simultaneously about 50 feet over the top of our heads, the effect of that would be trivial compared to what the voice of God would be like if God spoke. But not only that, if God were to speak, it would crush us flat. It would knock us flat. But we would be crushed by beauty. That's the thing. We, we, we wouldn't be crushed by some raw, inexorable force. We would be crushed by something that's altogether lovely. And so God is not going to do that to us until we're equipped to handle it, 
All right, that's what he's doing. He's fitting us for heaven. He's fitting us for the re resurrection. And that's why everything you're late. Don't be discouraged, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The things that you're doing now matter. Or, or Sproul puts it, right now counts forever. Everything, you, everything you're doing, all the things you're trusting God for, all of it counts. All of it matters. So, this would be altogether beautiful. If God were to reveal himself, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, that, unapproach, that unapproachable light would be unapproachable because of its loveliness. So, we're not, so we, we are talking about majesty, splendor, glory, honor, might, and an everlasting dominion. So it's not just that the word of this God is sure. It is fitting. It, it is that it is fitting that his word is sure. Not only is his word sure and certain, but it's right and proper that his word is sure and certain. It's not just, okay, I've got this sense of justice and my sense of justice is right, but he's stronger than I am, so I just have to do what he says or he's going to squash me like a bug. It's not like that. It's not like that. God, your sense of justice over against God's sense of justice, what, if there's a discrepancy, it, the problem is on your end. You've, got, you've defined it improperly. You've, de, you've defined it wrongly somehow. So God is altogether holy, altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether good, altogether kind. He is your father. He is your father. And you should listen to what he says because he's explained these things. He's laid it all out. He's laid it all out for us, and he's gone over it again and again and again because we're thick, and, we, and as soon as the trouble arises, all our Sunday school lessons evaporate and run away. One of the things that throws us is we, we are living in a world where there are others, there are non-believers who boast and brag and taunt and blaspheme. What do we do with them? The rebellions of the godless are vanity itself. But to us, who often do not have the vantage point of heaven, their grimaces can be scary. Their bluster does not seem like empty bluster to us. Their posturing doesn't seem like posturing. Their great swelling boasts seem like swelling breakers that threaten to sink and drown us all. But the promises of God are like the massive rocks on the Oregon coast. And when, the, and when the waves meet the rocks, the waves lose. When the waves meet the rocks, the waves lose. God's word is sure and certain. God is a rock, says in Deuteronomy 32. God is a rock and his works are perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. The, the, the fluid rebellions of men, the, the, the ebbing and flowing of man's hostility to God, is not something that God cares about at all. So the Most High, as it says in verse 4, the Most High God is mightier than their noise. He is mightier than the noise of man. Does the Supreme Court, for example, say that men can marry men? Do they say that? Yes, they do. This decision was made by nine mortals black-robed mortals, every last one of them in the process of dying. Every last one of those people, they, they full height, behind a nice-looking bench, black robe, this is the slum, this is the law. We're going to utter the majesty of demos, the people. We're going to give you our wisdom. 
Men can marry men. Now, what are, what are they? As Augustine puts it, I think in the City of God, in human affairs, the dead are replaced by the dying. The dead are replaced by the dying. We are transient mist. Your life is a mist, James says. And we are going to say of God, we're going we're to overturn God's rule. Remember, God rules in heaven, and so what he fixes on earth is fixed. He fixed marriage on earth. And because God's rule is, is, is in heaven, marriage is what it is and not what we say it is. All the fruit flies of earth, every fruit fly off of every banana anywhere, has gathered together and they've declared war on the citadels of heaven. And none of the watchmen on those celestial towers seem even to have noticed. They don't care. Our tumults don't touch them. Our tumults don't reach them. The throne of God's dominion is utterly and infinitely out of range. The throne of God's dominion cannot be touched by a Supreme Court ruling. It cannot be touched by the, by the executive order of some president. It cannot be touched by anything we do. We can assemble two or three. We can assemble two or three armies. We can do whatever we like. We're just midges floating around in the sunshine complaining about the sun. So, if you want something here on earth to be secured, the place where it must be anchored or secured is there in the realm of God, in the glory of God, in the will of God. That's why we're told in Colossians 3 to fix our minds on Christ. Fix your, f- fix your mind in, on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Set your mind there. There's a common saying, a proverb that says he's so heavenly-minded, he's, he's no earthly good. Uh, and that's talking about someone who's hyper-pious, hyper-devout, and he's so busy praying in his prayer closet that he never gets anything done, never does any of his duties. Well, obviously, that's not really being heavenly-minded. That's not genuine heavenly-mindedness. In the Bible, when people are truly heavenly-minded, that's when they do the most earthly good. When we fix our mind in the heavenly places, we're not going to be distracted, disoriented, or lied to by the people who are trying to do something else down here. We're going to set ourselves to our duties. We're going to say, God is in heaven. Christ is on his throne. I am his servant. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to respect my husband. I'm going to bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm going to work hard, as, not as a, man, as a man pleaser, but I'm going to work hard at my job as before the Lord. I'm going to do what God sets before me to do, and I'm going to trust him for the consequences. I'm going to trust him for the results because my life is not senseless. There is not one senseless element in it. If you are a child of God, nothing is random. Nothing. The hairs of your head, Jesus stated it bluntly, the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows whether the hairs on your head right this minute are odd or even. He knows how long they are. He knows how many atoms are in each one. God knows. Your hairs are all numbered. And not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And, Jesus says, you are worth what? You are worth more than many sparrows. And God keeps track of them. If God keeps track of how many cats, how, God, how many sparrows, and that is all completely under his control, and you're worth more than many sparrows, you can know that nothing whatever is senseless. Nothing is senseless. 
But I want to know now what the sense is. I, I want to know now what the purpose is. Oh, you want to drive. I say, you want to drive. Well, what's, what that, you know what that means? If God said, okay, you can drive, then it really would be senseless. Right? The first thing you do is drive right into a tree. If you, if you were given the authority to govern your life because you want to be behind the wheel, you want to have some sort of sense of control, no, that, you, that, that really would be random and chaotic, and then you really would have something that would require explanation. God does it all perfectly. Your life is hand-tailored. Your life is hand-stitched. It's fitted to you perfectly. Your troubles are perfect. Your difficulties are perfect. The things that you have to surmount, it's all perfect. The obstacle course that God has you run, it's not a yard too long, right? It's, everything's, just, everything's perfect. And you say, but, but there's sin in the world. Yes, there's sin in the world. And God perfectly controls the world. He controls those who are sinning, and he controls those who want to be his servants in the midst of this sinful world. His control is not up for question. What's up for question is whether that's going to be a blessing to you or not. And as you receive it from him, if you receive it in faith, with gladness, he does good. And, you can see, and this is the wonderful thing, is that you can see how good it is. You can, you can begin to see, and, and those parts of it you can't see yet, you can trust him for how good it's going to be. You, you can say, I'm under the loom, all I see are the knots, but I trust you. As the old southern gospel um, song has it, farther along we'll know all about it. Farther along we'll understand why. Farther along we'll know all about it. Farther along we'll understand why. So, the God who reigns, the God who has reigned from all eternity, is a God who speaks. He is an author he has written and published a book. This God, who laughs at the sea foam of secularism, is a God who has testimonies. These testimonies are his word, and the doctrines of that word are truth itself, and the precepts of that word are holiness itself. His doctrines don't require edits. His commandments don't require upgrades or adjustments or moral improvements. They do not change with the times. God's word does not change with the times. They are, in fact, God's words are, in fact, utterly behind the times. It'd be hard for anything to be more behind the times than the words of the ancient of days. These things were written, these things were given to us by the ancient of days. The ultimate ruler who is always, by definition, behind the times. What is the ancient of days? He's behind the times and underneath the times and over the times and ahead of the times. He is as behind the times as you can get. Another way of saying behind the times is before eternal ages. The Ancient of Days wrote a book. The Ancient of Days lays it all out for you. The Ancient of Days explains it. And he says, look, trust me, this is what I've done. And, and he gives us story after story all the, over the course of centuries through the, through the course of the Bible. He gives us episode after episode. He gives us king after king. He gives us prince after prince. He gives us husband after husband, wife after wife. He gives us story after story so that we might begin to get the picture. So we can trust him. We can trust his word. If we don't know how it's all going to come out, we trust the one who called the play. We don't know, your word just 
We're just doing our bit here. We trust the one who called it. This is what I want you to do. So we want to read his word. What does he want me to do? And then you go do that. You're found at your station. Would you behold the majesty that this psalm speaks of? Would you behold the splendor that this is talking about? Would you see that majesty? We know from this psalm that God is, in fact, clothed with majesty. God is, in fact, clothed with majesty. And we know that it is true. We know that is true. Moses knew it was true. Are you hungry for this the way Moses was? See, Moses saw many glorious things that God had done. Moses knew that God was glorious. And Moses had seen that. But he wanted more. Are you hungry for the glory of God the way Moses was when Moses asked if he could see the glory of God? We are invited to do so, and we've been given a special glass or a mirror or a lens that enables us to see it. That glass, that lens, that mirror, that device for seeing the glory of God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised for his saints. God wants us to see his glory. We tend to get used to, the, you know, we get used to the catechism thing. What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the gospel? Well, there's a division, man sinned, God created man and man sinned and there's a chasm and then you cross the chasm with the, the cross and you can walk across on the cross and all, all of that is absolutely true. You can have a truncated um, outline of what the gospel is and the truth represented by that is glory. But too often, if we got used to it, if we've said it over, yes, I know, I've heard it before. Or you sing it, you can sing, you mumble, mumble your way through a glorious hymn. I remember one of my favorite hymns now is Holy, 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 which I remember growing up as a boy in the Baptist church. It was number one. I remember what um, number it was, number one in the hymnal, Holy, Holy, Holy. I hated that song. Why did I hate that song? Because I always felt like we were at God's funeral. Right? The, the words are glorious. The tune is glorious. Everything about that hymn is glorious. But it was sung like a dirge. Like God died. We're sad. We're, we're the few people who remain who were sad. We were glad he was here, but now he's gone. <laughs> As though the church were a library, shh, you know, Preachers or librarians telling them to shush and God or God's either dead or sleeping and if he's sleeping we don't want to wake him up because then what would happen? The gospel, all of these things, we we get used to truth and we just get accustomed to truth and and we uh, take it for, we take truth for granted. But the truth is glorious. The truth is glorious. There really is a chasm that Christ really did cross and you really can cross through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's it's true. And it's gloriously true. The gospel is that which enables you to see this. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, that is, not just the apostles, not just the super spiritual ones, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If there is not an ongoing glory growth, if there's not an ongoing glory transformation, then something's wrong. You are glory. What is man? 
Man is the glory, the image and glory of God, it says in 1 Corinthians. And woman is the glory of man. And what is sin? It is to, sin is falling short of the glory of God. It's when you sin, you're falling short of glory. It's a sin not to be glorious. It's a sin not to have glory. It's a sin not to possess glory. It's, not, it's a sin not to hunger for glory. And God has given us a device for attaining that glory, and he wants us to go from glory to glory. Man is created in the image and glory of God. Jesus was sent in order to restore that image in us, and that, proje- that project of restoration is a glorification project. We are being transformed by the gospel from glory to glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. One other thing, Paul says that he resolved to know nothing among the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. There's a way of gathering all the Christians in town together and telling them all how to become Christians. Are you? And then you give an invitation, and every service is treated like an evangelistic service. That's not what knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified is all about. It is The gospel is that which produces Christians, and the gospel is that which grows Christians up into ever-increasing glory. And you want to be hungry for it. You want to ask God to give you more of it, always more of it. It's always going to be a matter of further up and further in, always. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we're not going to look at each other and say, well, I suppose that's it. (laughs) I guess what what do you want to do now? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you honestly think an infinite God that we're going to arrive? Do you, want, do you honestly think that there's ever going to be a time when we can say, yep, that's it, I've, I've mastered it all? No. It's always further up and further in, always glory upon glory, always more. God has done this for us so we could grow eternally and always have something to look forward to always have something to look forward to, which is the only thing he has to give, which is more Christ, more glory, more of God, more of himself. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I I pray that you would help us as we meditate on these things. Bless us and keep us as we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This meal celebrates both God's justice and God's mercy. God's justice required death for sin. Jesus stood in our place and received the death our sins justly deserve. This is the justice of God, Christ's body broken, his blood shed for what our sin deserved. And precisely because Christ died in our place, God proclaims mercy to sinners like us. Justice is deserved, mercy is undeserved. Justice is demanded, mercy is completely free. The Christian life is built on this twofold reality. Justice is the concrete foundation you pour to build a culture. It means telling the truth, establishing facts by two or three witnesses, keeping your word, paying what you owe. The mercy of God is the living room, with kindness and laughter and singing. The grace of God in Christ does not set aside the necessity and goodness of justice. Rather, it allows us to start over again with a clean slate, to forgive debts, to lay new foundations. In Jesus, God always builds his mercy on top of his justice. But sinful hearts want to build justice on top of mercy. Hey, we're all Christians here, right? Quickly becomes an excuse for not keeping your word, for sloppy work, for not paying your bills. It's a demand for mercy. 
If you don't cut me some slack or give me another chance or bail me out, you're being unjust. No, actually, you have no right to demand mercy. This is trying to build justice on top of mercy, and it never works. Justice will always end up crushing mercy that way. To live as Christians mean we have come, we have come to love mercy. It's precisely because we love mercy that we protect it. This doesn't mean that we become cranky accountants, making sure everyone appreciates mercy and grace as much as we think they should. That would be the definition of ungracious. But when we see someone trying to build justice on top of mercy, we do object. If a man doesn't work, let him not eat. If you think you can demand grace, you're out of your mind. God's grace is free, completely undeserved, and it teaches us to love God's law, to love the truth, to love honesty and integrity. And we love to forgive. We love being generous because mercy is free, absolutely free. This meal proclaims free grace, bottomless free mercy that you can't earn, you can't demand, you can't ever be worthy of because Jesus paid it all. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that in Jesus, your justice was perfectly and completely served. And we thank you because of that, that we have received your mercy and we have this table where we celebrate that. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. If anyone had the right to say, well, I guess I've seen just about all God's glory there is, it would be Moses. I mean, all the plagues, the opening of the Red Sea, triumph over Egypt, magic bread out of heaven, water out of a rock, and, 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 and there he is on the mountain. God, show me your glory. When you know the glory of God, when you, be able, when you begin to taste and see the glory of God, it always makes you hungry for more. He says, I know there's more. And so my charge to you, actually I'm gonna give you two charges. The first service only got one charge. My first, my first charge to you is, is I want you to pray that way. God, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. Just make that a prayer of yours regularly throughout the week. Lord, show me your glory. And recognize that it's gonna come in unexpected ways. If the center of God's glory is in Jesus on the cross, that was very unexpected. And it's the kind of glory, God's glory is the kind of glory that's probably gonna mess up your week. Okay, so just be ready for that. But ask for God to show you his glory. And then my second charge is, and when you see it, tell someone. When you see it, tell someone. I saw God's glory this week. Tell someone. And go with your God's blessing. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.